right, Tom, we're here doing, I guess, a sort of bonus extra pod. We're going to cover the tender offer doc, the Q1 financials, and take in a bunch of listener questions, of which we had many. First, uh, how are you doing? Yeah, really good, thank you. It's been a while. Been uh, away on my jollies yeah. for a little bit, but yeah, back to reality now, which is less than fun. I managed to catch most of the United games while I was away, though there was a couple that started at four and i just decided not to to watch those live but i did end up watching them i was the forest game that was like the four o'clock and i watched it on repeat it's like what am i doing to myself here but yeah, yeah. it was it was great to be honest how are you you were in india and australia yes yes india i think there was only one game while i was there australia there was a few because i was went like the christmas new year period but it was great the weather was lovely and then yeah coming back to to Britain with that weather. I mean, it's it, it's amazing how many foreign people live in Sydney, like Austra- uh, English, like Far Eastern, Irish, so many European, so many Indian people. And it's like, no wonder everyone lives here because it's, it's so lovely. And also the weather's so amazing. And then you come back to yeah. the UK and it's like, yeah, I, I kind of, I can see the appeal of why people move <laughs> over there. It's just... Maybe yeah. you should do it. Weather my, more than anything, it's better. My dad and my sister live out in sydney so oh well, nice. my dad's just outside and, and sister in in right in town but yeah and it is really easy if you're under 35 in if you're from the uk as well you can get a three-year visa visa right. all you have to do is just work at a coffee shop or a, a place in retail for for those three years and yeah you get right get a three-year stay which is pretty lovely very nice some of us on this podcast are not under 35 so sorry I'll let listeners guess which one so, yes, I think my my chances of getting on that visa situation are, are gone. But there you go. Have oh. you been catching any of Afcon? Yeah, a bit. So I haven't. I can't say I've been watching every single game, but it has been a really interesting tournament. Like how open it is. I can't remember an Afcon being this open where, the, like, so many of the be- best teams, best teams. In, in the first round of, of lost or drawn or come very close to losing or drawing games like Egypt scoring a last minute equaliser in their first game to to save embarrassment and then Ghana losing like Nigeria have struggled in the in the in the start and like I think Morocco were worthy winners like big winners but like it's it's amazing Cape Verde went through today like courtesy yeah. of the the Bebe screen it's like a it's like a poor man's Ronaldo versus Arsenal, isn't it? But I think Cape Verde are now through. Like it's it is kind of crazy how how competitive that tournament is. Yeah, the the chaos levels in Afcon do seem higher than in mm. other tournaments. Or maybe it's just that it's it, it is so open and the the standards are, are, are pretty even across the continent. So I I should have someone from ACL the the sports network on shortly I've had COVID so I meant to sort that one out earlier but I've been lying on the sofa feeling sorry for myself as you do and why not yeah I did manage to read the financials and the tender offer doc so maybe we'll go through those and take some questions and uh, talk a little bit about transfers because there's been a, a some movement not much but a little bit of movement so where should we start? You, you want to do the tender offer or the, the Q1 financials? Which nerdy uh, stuff? Let's go, let's go for the tender offer. This is, this is right. your bag, isn't oh. it? It's, bag of oh, treats. It's good. It was good. Oh, oh suits you. 
<laughs> I do like this stuff. I mean, fortunately, I, I have a fair amount of experience of reading these SEC docs, so I'm, I'm not a contract lawyer, but my uh, line of work has taken me into to reading these fair bits. So um, it was kind of interesting because quite a lot of stuff came out of this one. There was a narrative around the the bid process, which I guess have done for transparency reasons. You don't actually get this in every tender offer, but but it gave some color on the timeline around the bid process. And especially, I think this is for A-class shareholders to ensure that uh, everyone feels comfortable that everyone got the same offer. And it's very, very clear from this, this document that the Glazer family were very concerned right from the beginning about ensuring that A and B class shares were treated equally when it came to purchasing. So there was, um, if you if you read through the doc, it's clear that both bidder A, that's uh, Sheikh Jassim and the, the Qataris, and Ratcliffe and Ineos and Trawlers were interested in the B class shares of the Glazer family more than the A class shares, which are on the public stock exchange. So that's that's the one thing. There was an attempt by both parties to just buy out those first, and it's clear in the document that that, that is the case. And then the the other stuff that's super interesting is just how much Ratcliffe. So there's four separate bids from Ratcliffe over the period. Then a lot of negotiation in between, clearly, and how much it changed. So he started out just bidding for the Glazer family shares, uh, which was sixty nine percent of the club, just the B shares, which ninety uh, percent of the voting power, uh, and offering twenty two a share, and he's obviously gone up to twenty five percent of B shares, twenty five percent of A shares, at thirty three. So there's quite a uplift, fifty percent uplift in the price per share, uh, and obviously a completely different deal structure that we've ended up with than than was started, and some of that was reported publicly, wasn't it? At least the idea that Ineos were just wanting to bid for the Glazer shares and not trying to buy the club out fully. Which was kind of interesting, I thought. Mm-hmm. So there's that piece. And then I guess the other really super interesting bit was around the Qataris. And this has been, or Bidder A, this has been sort of widely mocked, I think, or reported. The fact that on three separate occasions, they've been asked to provide proof of funds and failed to do so. Um, now, there's been some sort of like off the record briefing with the Qataris' favourite journalist ben jacobs um and uh, i don't know whether sky cavi has come out with anything because he's the other favorite journalist i didn't see maybe he's hiding his tail between his legs as he should do so uh, they've come out and pushed back on this have to say as has been widely commented by some people who understand these things as well that the idea that two sets of investment bankers and two sets of lawyers would lie in an SEC document mm. for what purpose, I don't know, yeah. and conspire together to do it is absolutely fucking preposterous. Like, it's just not going to happen. You face, like, both financial and criminal penalties and losing your license to practice law. It's just nonsense. So I'm just going to ignore completely the spin that's coming out. But I don't know. I'll stop talking and let you have some thoughts here. But... It's just, it's just so odd, isn't it? The way the the PR and the actual bid process, especially around the Qataris, doesn't match up. Yeah, you, you say let me have some thoughts, but I don't, I don't know what my thoughts are because it's so, 
it's so baffling it's so confusing i know a couple of people have asked questions like what in the hell were guitar doing along the lines of that I, I, well i don't know enough about this thing and i don't know enough about like the 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 whole Qatari state project and and kind of what goes in the, in the minds of of people who live there and work there and, and Sheikh Jassim and the people behind it. So I just don't, I don't understand what they were doing. If they don't, if they didn't have the money, like what are they doing? Like, I guess in some respects it, you can weaponize the fans and you can get, and in and the, and the way that they did, they had people, they had United fans across the globe with Qatar uh, flags in their bio. And maybe they think we can get all these people on board. They can kind of, uh, boost the profile again of Qatar for a little while. We can, yeah, get get into this huge news story and, and be a focus of it, and never actually plan on potentially taking over the club. And it's it's great publicity for United, and then uh, for Qatar. And then people will kind of just almost like in the same way as David Brent goes, they won't remember. And when that story comes out, then people aren't. I mean as as stories like this always happen like people always remember the first bit of news they don't actually read up on the second bit of news so i guess in in a in a, in a way it will give you more publicity good good publicity and very little bad, bad publicity but i can't really understand like why you would do that like if you never had any intention of buying the club and you were the biggest well you were saying you were the biggest bidder what are you doing and like you mm. say you can't even spin this because it's, it's it's not just a thing like uh, you can say oh yeah the Glazers were being dickheads or whatever like it's it's, it's a legal it's a legal thing like it's like you say it's, it's also like two outside investment agencies who are saying this it's not just it's not just spin it can't just be spin like I don't right it's really difficult to decipher what they were doing in this in this scenario like if it, if they were just trying to get publicity for for Qatar or for Sheikh Jassim, I can't imagine like Sheikh Jassim's like, like what's he doing it for like personal reasons. It, it seems so it's odd. So odd. It? So odd. Yeah. Oh well. So T to the Lizzo on Twitter says, "What in the hell were Qatar doing? Briefing the press for months that they were no longer serious. When after they were no longer serious candidates, are we seeing a new type of sports washing that doesn't require spending money? Is United washing the new thing, or did Knighton invent it?" And I guess it feels like conspiracy theory thinking, doesn't it? This this kind yeah. of this kind of angle, but it's just so weird. So the last bid from the Qataris came in October. And after that, we were still getting press in Bloomberg. Yeah. And I remember on Twitter, not to go, oh, I told you so, a Bloomberg piece came out saying United have sealed this bid. Right? So the Qataris have sealed this bid, and it was single-sourced, and it was very un-Bloomberg-like. And I pushed back on Twitter and I said, I think this is weak as fuck. And I had a whole bunch of people go, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and and, and not, not like, I'm not being, oh, I told you so. I just didn't believe the single-sourcing in that story. I didn't believe it was credible, and it read like all the other PR briefings that were single-sourced as well. And I think that's almost certainly what happened. So some people journalists so i think honestly should know better were quite happy to get on the phone to qatar's london-based pr firm so they have several for the world cup and i assume they retain them for this bid process as well or maybe they got one of the financial pr firms and take briefings verbatim and ben jacobs i know i've mentioned him a few times now did this the other day where he just quotes it verbatim and I put back to him as well. I said, you should not do this, right? It's your job as a journalist to cut through the bullshit 
and give us what we think is a story, not just copy-paste what they've told you and say, oh, well, they deserve a say. Because have we learned nothing from Brexit and from Trump and all the other grifters out there that not all information is equal, right? You don't mm. go, Trump says the sky is green, everyone else says it's blue, and the headline being there's a disagreement with, between people about what colour the sky is, right? That That's what he's doing there. And I just think it's ridiculous. Uh, and... Not everyone is high information on this. Not everyone reads into the documents. And so do the work for them. That's your job as a journalist. And I think not doing that is failing people. And, yeah, sorry, I'm getting getting on a rant there. But I just think some of the reporting around this has been really crap. And we know it. And they should look at this and be embarrassed about their reporting because they've single-source stuff for months. You also wonder how much money is being passed handers as well, really. Like that that oh. is, I guess, conspiratorial thinking because there's no evidence to to what I've just said. But I mean yeah. I'd just put that out there. Hey, we've got a very large United fan channel. Um yeah, dude who's from Rand Your Way. <laughs> he is, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh who got on the Qatar train in a really big way. And I'd heard from other sources that he has not only had support from within the club for doing that from some people, but but may well be financially compensated. I don't know that for sure. So, you know, I said, well, actually, given where I live, First Amendment rights, I can say whatever <laughs> the fuck I like. <laughs> yeah, uh, within bounds. I couldn't say that he's a nonce. Uh, you know, so I definitely wouldn't say that. Um, but uh, but I can say I suspect he's been paid. Uh <laughs> Anyway, sorry, sorry to get on that one. And then, and then the other one that's like been really weird is Rio, who has obviously been sort of pushing the agenda. He is a paid ambassador for Qatar, so for Qatari travel and tourism, and and given the nature of the country, it's pretty much a government agency. But then he put out this video, if you remember, a few months back, where he said, "I've heard that it's been sealed." Who did he yeah. hear that from? They yeah. were so confident to put that out. And this is the weird stuff about all of this. Why? Like, and the other thing I should say, and, and we've got a, a few questions here. So, <laughs> Cantonar Collars, a uh, friend of the show, I think Larry on Twitter, you may know him. Uh, now that we know that Jessin was a fraud, do we owe the despotic human rights violating state that is Qatar an apology? See, this is the thing. I was so convinced. I was co- like, I, I had done my homework on this one, right? I, I spoke to some people, both one on the record and a few off the record about the nature of politics in Qatar. And what I was told is, given that this was, well, Qatari economy is about 200 billion annually. So this is five to six dollars, that is, five to six billion. It's come out about five and a half, hasn't it? So this is, you know, a couple of percent of GDP. Like, I was told that there's no way a transaction of that size would happen without the implicit go ahead from the emir, right? That it would have to. Go. Uh, and, and given that, you know, Jassim is on the inner circle, very much on the inner circle, then this was given the OK by the Emir. Now, if that's true, why didn't they, quote unquote, blow everyone out of the water? It's just mm. it's just like it's not like the Qantari investment fund can't afford this. They definitely can. So it's it's so odd. Mm-hmm. I think the other, other question that, that kind of is, is also in my mind is. What were they maybe doing it? to to stop other states taking an interest like were they thinking i don't know it was may, maybe saudi were never going to do it because they've got newcastle but 
but maybe like one of the other Gulf states were potentially interested and Qatar were like, how about if we pretend to do this and we're saying we're going to blow it out of the war, we're going to just put a massive bid in or pretend we've got going to put a massive bid in, then no other state's going to kind of compete against us because they think, oh yeah, Qatar have, are kind of the head of the game here. Because the, the thing is that no one else was interested. No one else said they were interested apart from Ratcliffe. It was always a two-horse race. There was no other horses involved in this. So, uh, yeah, that, well, it's certainly I've got, got strange thing. Yeah, so, yeah. No, sorry to sorry to butt in there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there were a hundred and seventy something expressions of interest, and twenty nine people got to the first phase of asking for for details on the the bidding. I, I forget exactly how it's phrased in the the tender doc now, but when we got down to actual formal bids, there were only two. So I think there were seven who did got access to the data room and they were pro-equity funds and probably some of the names that we'd heard, like Elliot and a few other pro-equity firms that were going to do what what's called structured debt, so debt to equity. But yeah, really two serious bidders all along. And as we now know, really only one serious one, bidder. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's the amazing thing. You know, we've had, we had over a year of this. And it got to the point after 13 months of, of going through this that Ratcliffe gave an ultimatum and said, unless you do this by Christmas Day, I'm out. We Right down to the wire. Now, I don't know how serious that was or just brinkmanship, uh, but it seems like they got completely pissed off. Uh, and there were a few little things that got changed right at the end. Uh, yeah, minor details that aren't worth discussing too much, uh, I think. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so I mean... Bizarre. It's good fun colour, isn't it? Mm. But but what we've ended up with, and, and given that the Ratcliffe tour to Old Trafford recently, he went to the, the game at Spurs, and he's met with several fan groups. I mean, they're pulling off the PR thing mm-hmm. very well. I mean, certainly, so we're going from a low base, right? Joel Glazer spoke at one fans forum in 18 years <laughs> or whatever. You know? I, once, I once saw when I was... Back when I was a season ticket holder, when I was about sixteen, I once saw Joel Glazer in the in the club shop. It was really weird. I was like, "Why are you here?" I actually spoke to him for a little bit because I don't know. I was like a quite a I don't know arrogance of youth type of thing. I just went over to him and spoke to him. I was like, "Do you come to many games here?" So I've kind of been for such a long time. I was like, in my head, I was like, even like being young, I was like, "I know you're not liked here." So what are you doing? But that must have been like one of the few times he was actually there. Yeah. Anyway, segue. Tom, Tom, you spoke to Joel Glazer and you didn't have a shot at him. I can't. I mean, at least a little low blow. It, it, there was a couple of, like a few low blows in there, but I wasn't rude. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a confront, like confrontational chap, especially back then. I didn't have the, didn't have the stones for it. I'd, I'd have got the rage. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not confrontational until like the Hulk thing flicks in my brain and then I get very confrontational. But that's why I was kind of like so like surprised about because I was like, surely there's like people out like in this shop now who are like, because I was in there because it was freezing cold. It was like November or whatever. And sometimes you used to wander around there because I was too young to drink. I was like, just wander around there to keep warm for a bit. And I was like, surely there are people in here a lot more confrontational than me who are going to go and confront you. It's very odd. But yeah, I'm not that type of guy, I'm afraid. Sorry. Apologies to all. 
I'm I'm old enough that they didn't really do any IDing when I was a teenager going on the bus around the country <laughs> to watch United games. So yeah, I'd be going into the pub age. I can't remember how <laughs> young I was when I first started going on that bus, but. Yes, pretty pretty young, and yeah, no, no one ever stopped. I was also quite tall for my age, so I think I probably looked eighteen. Yeah, I look like a child. Still do. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say. But, <laughs> so you, you got a new haircut though. It's all it's a bit curlier on. It was top, it was so. curly for the last one, but you, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was, yeah I, I did it for it. I did like a, a lot of Aussies. I don't know how many Aussies listen to this show, but so many Aussies have a perm. So I thought if I get one. Fit, kind of in. fit in yeah look like less of an outsider but they always do it with the um they have a lot of so many mullets in in australia so many mullets yeah. so many mustaches i think adam zampa is one of the first i remember having one but yeah but i, I kind of I mean, well that's you went around for merv hughes well that's true so. the next the next stage is the is the mullet perm but yeah that's a bit a bit of time away i think oh i think you should do it I think so. Why not? And also Probably move to Sydney. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get yourself a giant pot belly and you'll be able to take up cricket. I feel like, yeah, it's a bit like a cultural appropriation a little bit, but yeah, well. It's probably all right. Yeah. Sorry. All right. That's that's Ratcliffe and the bid process. I, I there's, there's a few questions about how do we feel about this now. And, uh, well, we'll get to some of these in a bit, but I, I, I feel pretty good at this stage. I mean, obviously time is going to tell what exactly they can do given given what we're going to talk about next which is the financials because this is going to hamstring it a lot but the Ineos crew taking over the sporting department at some point I mean already doing their review apparently with Brailsford then at some point we'll get I imagine a new sporting director and then the CEO is slightly different so because that will also that'll be the PLC board so the Glazers have a majority say there I think think, all right I think it's one of the most exciting times in the last 15 years or so to be honest like i know it's not every it's, it's not everything everyone wanted you obviously all wanted the glazers to get out of the club but like still it's someone coming in with previous experience in a, in a top league kind of knowing what they're doing like nice haven't been the best over the past few years but they're doing really really well this season so like it is really exciting like, i don't feel like there's that much excitement surrounding the club and maybe that's because everyone's just turned into apathy and everyone wanted a full sale but still like it's it is an exciting time like if we can't yeah like i say if we can't we we haven't had much to be excited about over the last 15 years so pretend it's like a glimmer of hope for me i feel like it's a glimmer of hope yeah. and, and maybe it could be a lot more than that but yeah well, i guess time will tell but i think it is i think it is genuinely exciting yeah no i think that's fair enough all right, Q1 financials. I'll just pull it up just in case I have to reference any of it. But I mean, like the good news, I, I mean, good news depends, depends on uh, who you are, I suppose. But the good, the good news is it's record quarterly revenues. This is just Q1, so it's June to September. And record quarterly revenues, a big boost from matchday incomes. Obviously, Champions League has factored into that, at least a couple of early rounds of the Champions League. But also, both broadcasting, uh, which will be Champions League again, and commercial has had a big uptick. So it's 13% year-over-year growth in the quarterly top-line revenue. So, so that's the good news. Bad news is there's an almost equal increase in costs. And factored in, so not only just on the cost side, but also 
uh, unfavorable foreign exchange has increased United's financing costs quite a bit. So it's normally about 20 million uh, or so. The, uh, United's debts in dollars and revenues predominantly in pounds, obviously, and that has gone up. So all these things together, rising costs, rising financing costs, mean United actually turned a profit into a loss. And, and so that's not great. So United actually made a loss over this quarter, added to the loss over the previous two years, and you're looking at actually more than £200 million worth of losses over that period, which is not awesome when we get down to financial fair play, right, or PSR, Profit and Sustainability Regulations. That said, I know, I know there's been a bit of commentary around this saying that maybe United are pushing against the edge of PSR and could obviously Forrest and Everton have been charged mm-hmm. Just in the past week or so, I suspect not. So United can lose 105 million over a three-year rolling period, and owners can put in 90 million of equity or do other sources. What has tended to happen with United's other sources, it's revolving debt, which we'll get to. The owners don't put money into this club, surprisingly. Ratcliffe obviously is. This has come after that. So I think United are all right because I think there's enough deductions that they'll be able to find for infrastructure costs, women's teams, youth development, foundational work, all of that kind of stuff. I think they're probably all right. But still, it's gonna, it will be tight, I'm sure. People will be working it out and the club seem very confident that they're going to meet the regulations. So that's the kind of top line. The other top line piece is that the debt is just, just astronomically huge. So it's 500 some million pounds of, of primary sort of debt that's never gone down really materially over the last 18 years. About 200 million of revolving credit facility, so the credit card basically. And 364 million of outstanding transfer payments. And you're like looking at the picture, you go, where the fuck's that gone? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, United about. Just, just shy of £1.2 billion pounds in debt. About the same as Tottenham's, except they got a brand spanking new stadium for it. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? When you look at like someone like Tottenham or, or, or other people that are in debt, they're like, you think, what is there to show for it? <laughs> there isn't anything, really. There's a, there's a creaky old stadium. There's a creaky old football team. There's a almost out-the-door manager. It's... <laughs> It's ridiculous. Absolutely nothing. Nothing to show for it. £940 million of cumulative interest payments since the Glazers took over. And then obviously there's there's a whole bunch on top of that of like uh, management fees that they really enjoyed taking in the early days, financing and refinancing costs, which has happened periodically over time, bond issue, conversion to debt, so on and so on, refinancing. And by the way, when you think about it like that, Glazers are very lucky that money has basically been free for the last 10 years. Mm. And then obviously dividends that they've taken out. I mean, it's just an astronomical amount of money that has just disappeared out of the club since the Glazers were, were, um, took over and were still 1.2 billion in debt. And they're going to make a massive profit on the money that they never invested in the first place because it was predominantly debt. I don't know how they pulled this off, but they pulled it off. I mean, you can say they were smart, but I don't know. They got lucky on so many occasions mm-hmm. with with the with the massive increase in broadcasting revenue during their time, which they cannot have predicted. 
they did they did increase they did increase commercial rights but so is all of United's rivals so I've never really bought into this theory that there were some kind of geniuses on this because every single club across large club across Europe has done the same thing United were maybe a bit earlier but not much really so yeah got they got so lucky the Glazers and and just to put it in perspective, Joel Glazer just walked away with 180 million to sell his A shares. Just Joel, who you know your best buddies with, we now discover. Um, <laughs> I think there's actually a photo of me with him. That, uh, I think my dad took. Oh photo. no! I think Man. to me as well, it's the, it's the shamelessness. You, of... you need to send that to me so I can put it name and shame you on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you will be able to see how much of a kid I look. I might have been even younger than 16 to be honest. Um, but it's it's the shamelessness of it as well this is the, the whole thing like it's I think a lot of football chairmen and football owners do have like a shamelessness to them but a lot of them almost self-combust after a while like the the pressure of the of the hate from the the crowd and the fans gets way too much that yeah they just they either blow up the football club or they blow up themselves and get out of there but the the I guess the bulletproof nature of the Glazers is, is almost unique. Their shamelessness is unique in that respect, that they, no matter how much pressure and how much hate that they got from the United fans, they just kept going in silence, in silent shamelessness. Like, And they still got support from some talking heads on the likes of Sky, the likes of especially TalkSport, for what they were doing. Oh, they were still giving money to the transfer policy and like that silence left a void which should have been filled by proper punditry and proper journalism to to really tell the story of what was happening at man united but hmm. for so many years it didn't like that vacuum was was filled by some talking heads who were telling the right story on on some certain channels but so much of it was told by these anyone but united kind of people who would who were saying yeah they've actually they've not done horrendously for united look at the money they've spent look at the personnel they've brought in and all that kind of jazz and i think that's if they were going to if you're going to talk about impressiveness that's the only thing that's impressive i think about their whole tenure as as united owners is is how shameless they were and how they were able to maintain this yeah this this 18 years of just yeah yeah vampirish 18 years essentially well i mean i i don't half get the feeling that if they hadn't lucked into this because malcolm was the successful business person not mm -hmm. not his devil's spawn <laughs> if they hadn't lucked into this they'd just be some kind of grifters wouldn't they yeah you know? they're just yeah, they'd, they'd be like on the circuit. I Shadowy mean, grifters, they, yeah, they, in the background kind of just... Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe they wouldn't be like good enough talkers and stuff like that to do the the sort of right-wing YouTube grifty thing, but they uh, they might well be you know, in those circles. Anyway, I mean, they, as we know, they raise money for Trump. I'm not making a party political statement here, really, although, you know, I've never... Never felt like I didn't have to. I didn't have the room to do that on this show anyway. But, but you know, they they raise money for Trump. We know that, and I believe they also raise money for Likud, so it's Netanyahu's party in Israel. So there's two sort of 
hard right of a similar style leaders there that they're part they're, they're mm. happy to raise money for so um yeah this is the completely shameless these people and they've done immense damage to to one of the important cultural institutions and i think if it wasn't for the fact that that football fandom is so tribal and it's taken all of this time for a government of the day to start thinking about regulation of football and it still hasn't come in by the way they haven't published a white paper yet the government if it wasn't for the tribal nature of fandom i think there would have been more commentary around the damage they've done it took a very long time it took a very long time even for gary neville he suddenly (laughs) found jesus didn't he yeah in the last couple of years but before this he was silent as fuck yeah and I, i i haven't forgiven him for that great player like took him way way too long to to start making comments about the the damage that these owners are causing yeah the, suspiciously long you know yeah yeah that's yeah. The, that's the right the right phrase the tribal nature is also so important like it's so childish and infantile the way that like the football media is run in this country that people of ex liverpool nature or liverpool fan or just anyone, to be honest, who wasn't a United, ex-United player. And to be honest, like you say, the ex-United players also weren't forthcoming with their Glazer criticism. Would just would just do anything and will do anything to just poke the knife into United, despite like what they were doing, like you say, to a great cultural institu- institution. Like they mu- it's 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 all just about banter. It's all just about winding people up. It's obviously just for clicks and but it it's it's incredibly damaging like what that those people don't understand the power that they have and it's yeah it's it went on for 18 years and and it still continues to go on and and i guess the shamelessness nature of of the people who who do who are these talking heads it's it's, it's especially like the talk sport generation to be honest that that they're the loudest they're the most obnoxious they're the I was going to say the thickest. It's not thick. It's actually like quite smart what they do. Like they they do it for clicks. They, but it's it's just so shameless mm-hmm. and it's so infantile, so childish, and they don't understand like what they're actually doing to to sport fandom in this country and, and cultural institutions. It's mm. it's really sad. Mm. Well, I hope. I mean, that if the regulation come goes through, and and there's no guarantee at this stage that it will do in this parliament before the um, the government changes at some point this year, that uh, I hope, like the the final regulator is given the power to think about not only ownership and what fit and proper is, um, but like whether it's okay to burden one of our institutions in this way. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for United's commercial power, obviously, just think about the, you know, the one and a half billion that's just disappeared from the club and the mismanagement. Like, I mean, actually, they're two different things, aren't they? Right? The mismanagement's hard to regulate. Yeah. Like the fact they're just dumb. Like United, the dumbest club in in world football, I think, given how much money we have managed to spend despite all that money disappearing. Like, what have we got for it? Like nothing. Nothing. Especially over the last ten years. Yeah, nothing. But. So it's hard to regulate that bit, but you can get, certainly go, well, there are constraints on leverage buyouts. Yeah. Put a bond mm-hmm. or something. You have to, as an owner, you have to put some money down, right? I mean, for sure you can just draw a line through state state bits. I mean, I think it's totally unacceptable that this has been allowed. I mean, we had Adam Crafton did some more reporting last week. Uh, yeah, he's just such a good 
we're not blowing smoke up his ass because he's a United fan, but he's he's such a good uh, reporter and covering these issues. Yeah. And I uncovered that a Newcastle chairman is being sued by a former member of the, the Saudi government. If you remember, there was the purge five years ago or so now where Mohammed bin Salman, now the uh, de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, had uh, all his political rivals locked up in a hotel and then quite a lot of people got disappeared. So, And then one of the families are suing. Uh, and, and through that litigation process, we're going to find out a lot about just how close Newcastle's chairman, PIF leader, is to bin Salman, and we know they are. Right? He's his right-hand man, the hatchet man. Mm. And why is that allowed? And we literally have murderers in charge of a football club in the Premier League. And, and the Premier League's, ah, oh, yeah, well, it's all right then. Yeah. Just when he talks. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Like, the, basically, the rules of Premier League have taken up now, until the regulator comes in, if it comes in, is, well, unless you're on the sanctions list, <laughs> and the sanctions list is a political list, then you're all right. So, as long as they're not aligned to Putin, Kim Jong-il, the Iranians or the Syrians. Yeah, or the Houthis. Or the Cubans, then it's all right. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, at least, though, that like the, the Saudis have some nous about them, like in terms of like actually like wanting to run a football club or like having like political kind of like connections and stuff. Our guys don't even do that. There was no like briefing, like, like their, their briefing like was so bad like they didn't even like give a shit about their like image they didn't have like political connections and stuff like our guys were just rubbish at everything like they, they were rubbish at running the football club but they were rubbish at all the other like political stuff that goes around it all the bureaucratic stuff that that surrounds the the actual managing of, of reputation and all that kind of stuff like it's just just a bunch of idiots basically Oh, yeah. And and the problem is that might not change. So we're going to have football operations are different, but the commercial side of the club is still going to be run by the Glazers. Yeah. And uh, and the revenue goes up, but so do the costs. And, yeah, as, as I said, United have lost more than 200 million over the last couple of years. So it, it's not like they're even doing a good job on the bit of the club that they're going to continue owning. We just got to hope that what is strongly indicated in the the bid the, the previous bid document, the sales the transaction agreement, sorry, comes to pass. Which I suspect that at some point between eighteen months and three years out, that Ratcliffe will will take full control of the club, and then it's up to him. But before then, there won't be any pay down of the debt or anything like that. Because why would Ratcliffe, as a minority shareholder, start doing that? It doesn't make any sense at all. But let's hope 18 months to three years, he's able to take over the club. This is a vanity project for him, legacy project, dick extension, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. Like, honestly, it's the best kind of owner. And he's yeah. wealthy enough to put United right to United. Now, whether they make the right decisions or not, we'll see. We'll see. Like I said before but, in the show, yeah. it's, it's, it's good that he's had, with all respect to Nice, a sandbox to to work with i guess nice is also by the sand so that kind of analogy works a little uh, the metaphor kind of works a little bit but like he's had an opportunity to try it not with a club like man united but still a club in in a top league 
with a club who have a very ferocious and for uh, yeah. fan base that they're, they're, they're very passionate down in Nice and it's a, it's a good historic club like it's great that he's had the opportunity to to try try out everything with them and yeah this season it's actually working out quite nicely so I think there's there's definitely some there's some enthusiasm some optimism to be had about what's going to happen fingers crossed it it doesn't just go the United way but like yeah yeah it's nice to actually feel like oh actually something might happen rather than just being in this kind of spiral death spiral type of thing that we've spoken about before yeah all right before we go, should we take some questions? I mean, some of them will cover similar ground, so we, we may skip a few. But there's a couple on that. Well, they're broadly financials, ownership, and then others. Hmm. Oh, Ten Hag and then Lots others. Of ten so Hag we may have ones, to yeah. skip through a few of the ownership ones. Yeah. Financials. Miles Bailey says, can you team up with Kieran McGuire to do a full analysis of first quarter results? No. Sorry. I didn't reach out to him, but I'm, I'm fairly... Um, used to reading the various SEC documents and you can go look on the IRs if you want to read yourself or Kieran actually put some good analysis out on his Twitter. Glacier says, given the need to re- raise quick, quick cash, the state of the current squad and talk of some big players potentially leaving, how many of the players in the current squad do you think we could sell without really weakening the starting 11? <laughs> quick cash. I don't think there is. I don't know. We were going to talk about transfers, but maybe that's maybe that's a good segue into talking about transfers. I I, I don't think Varane or Casemiro are leaving because the Saudi Saudi are not going to be big, doing big spending this winter. They're changing their rules. I think I mentioned on the last pod, so they can go from eight to ten foreigners per squad. So there's a better window in the summer to do that. No one else could afford at their age and intermittent fitness and no one else could afford these guys so yeah they'll they'll definitely look to get rid of those two i think in the summer apart from that it's it's younger players that united historically been reluctant to get rid of but i think they're they're going to be trying to sell a few of the younger players now we just won't be getting city fees because there's no success associated with the club Mm -hmm. city can sell a reserve player for 20 million we are going to be doing much less than that so i think um, but Hannibal, Hannibal has gone to Sevilla this yeah. week on loan with an option at 20 million euros. So something uh, we should still be exploring the option of getting rid of Maguire and McTominay in the summer as well, though. Like uh, there was, I, I think there's, so. Yeah, there's rumours. I think over the past couple of days that like the Ted Hogs still trying to flog Maguire, and and despite them both improving this season. In, in terms of the question, without really weakening the starting eleven, getting rid of those two doesn't like not our best team. I think back in the day, McTominay would have been a nice player to just have as a as a, a player who comes off the bench, knows the club, the, the Darren Fletcher, John O'Shea type of player. But I think with the position that we're in as a football club right now, I think he it makes sense for him to go. He has got some value. He has played well this season, so he should be kind of sought after and people will spend money. In the same way as Maguire looked like he's come back to not maybe his best but he looks like a capable Premier League footballer and therefore will have value so I think those two are just yeah. two obvious shouts who, who've have, in my opinion still got to go um, because they're not good enough for what yeah. we should be aspiring to and, and yeah as a football club I th- yeah I think that's fair enough it's not going to happen this January no. it's it's younger players that they're going to try and get rid of this January but in the summer I think that's a fair enough shout both have value. Maguire's wage is obviously a bit of a problem, but less so with McTominay. I still haven't forgiven him for missing that header. Oh my god! 
It's Spurs. Un- unbelievable. One job. Such a got. beautiful One boy. Job. Got that too. He, has, he just has that ability, doesn't oh. he? He's such a great crusher of the ball. Just six yards out, yeah. Scott. And yes, brilliant ball from oh. Garnaccio. Okay, let's let's take a few more questions. Brentford Ender Rising, friend of the show, says, who do you think was behind the AI creation of Sheikh Jassim? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it, doesn't it? Is. Has anyone actually seen him in real life? <laughs> Can the colours say, oh no, I've done this one. Jared Kyle says, can you explain how the Class A shareholders affected this process and the outcome? Did they play a big role in what Ineos could do in this deal? Well, I think it's the other way around. It was, uh, as I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, it was how the Glazers saw it. So I think they were, although they don't specifically say this, it was clear from the four bids that that, that Ineos made, or Trawlers Limited made, that the Glazers would not countenance a different offer for A and B shareholders so they were clearly advised that that litigation could come or some of the like Linzel train and a few of the other private equity firms that owned part of the 31 percent that was publicly floated uh, maybe have indicated that unless they got the same offer they were willing to litigate this so and and look there's precedent to say that they can be treated differently like google for example have sold off some of their b shares the owners there but but I think the general idea is that all shareholders should be treated equally. It's just it says in the United's Articles of Association that they won't necessarily be. So I don't know. It doesn't matter. It did affect it anyway. So fair question. Alex, ATM1988 says, are you surprised what we knew all along about Qatar has proven to be true? Thing is, I don't know. I don't know whether I agree with the premise. I mm. think what we believed, or at least what I believed, that it was a state bid because of the nature of the politics in that country. I can't square the idea that a state bid from a petro state with a massive sovereign wealth fund didn't come up with the money. That's really weird. Anthony says, there's talk that Ineos want to be competitive on the pitch and ruthless to achieve that, which personally I would welcome. However, with United still in a shit ton of debt, can we afford to take a hit on unwanted players, which the Glazers have notoriously been unwilling to do? I think they will. I think they just said that there will be a clearing of the decks. They'll get whatever value they can from players that are underperforming because why continue to flog that dead horse? And and they will try and secure a budget. But there's, it's definitely going to be tight for sure because like, it's just tight. I mean, United do, are not making money. So this, this does affect what United can do. The other thing is, although the rolling three-year period looks really bad the rules are going to change again and it's almost certain that the Premier League is going to move to a UEFA style squad cost rule which doesn't make it easier for United at all but we do have like a very large amount of revenue that you can then put to work so I don't envy Ratcliffe Brailsford John Blanc, whoever's involved finally the job they're going to have to do because it's it's a tough one yeah all right Here's one for you, Tom. Afzal says, are you ready for another decade of upheaval on and off the pitch and off the field and mediocrity on Did it? enjoy that question. I, I think, I think that yes, in a certain way. I've been trying to really work on my mental health. So yeah, meditation, self-help books. I'm ready for it, man. Bring it on. I think that's the only, <laughs> that's the only way to get through it. Jesus, it's going to be... Yeah, I don't know. I spoke about it, obviously, uh, having a little bit of optimism and enthusiasm about potentially where United could go. So you never know. But I mean, 
I think it is. I think it's getting getting ready for that. Like getting down in the in the bunker and getting ready for the ten years. Yeah. Why not? Get some books with you. We'll see. I mean, food. I have some hope. I have some yes. hope. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mental health, healthy food, food, bit of meditation, do some yoga, just chill out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's where I went in India as well. I went on the. Oh my god, I was such a. I was such a middle class white Westerner going to like some retreat when I was in India. But honestly, that's where everyone should go if they want to feel better about United. Like it was, it was bliss. And I think, yeah, maybe we could bring our own. I think they call it a sangha, where you kind of bring okay. bring like loads of in like the Buddhist like religion and, and culture. They they call it a sangha where you bring in loads of like minded people together and you. You sit together, you pray together, you chant together, and we could do that for United. That could be like a like a support group, but a, a sangha one, which would be more like yeah, more more to trying to calm down, get all the hearts our hearts together, and we'd all be able to chant like United songs. And, yeah, yeah, we could yeah all talk about our problems <laughs> yeah, maybe, together. Maybe we we'll, all talk about our United problems together. It's actually a good idea, to be honest. Next time I'm back in the UK, maybe we should do meet up and we can we can get some people together. <laughs> yeah, I've been to India a few times actually, but only ever to Delhi, and that is not a relaxing I, place. Yes, so it's incredible, but not relaxing. Yes, I've heard a lot of things about Delhi. Some of them good, some of them maybe shit, some of them maybe good. Just just my biggest tip for anyone who goes, like just for your own sanity, if you have to take a car anywhere, which you will. Just close your eyes. It's just better not to look out the window because it's just terrifying. I did say that to the taxi driver when I was over there. I was like, I'd, I'd have to take a new test to, to drive here. Like, you'd have no idea how to do it. Like, you can't rent a car when you go to India. Like, if you go to, like, I don't know, to Amsterdam right. or to Germany, you can rent a car. You can't rent a car when you go to yeah. India because you will you come back in, like, three pieces. Yeah, you would. I mean, you check, well, especially in Delhi, every taxi looks the same. So whether you order the Uber Black or the the cheapest version, or just get one off the street and hail it, they all they look like someone's taking a baseball bat and just smashed the shit out. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just incredible. Yeah, amazing place. I do recommend everyone goes there. But yeah, the driving is um, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get on to some some other stuff since we're we're well over time, I suppose. George Ellis says, would you forfeit this season to give Ten Hag another summer window under new management or better let him lose if results don't improve and start with somebody new in the summer? Which I think is a fair question on everyone's mind at the moment, including, I suspect, the Ineos crew who won't make the change now, but they'll leave it to the summer and we'll see whether with players back after injury, Ten Hag can get an uptick in performance. My, my confidence in Ten Hag is maybe maybe this will come back to haunt me, but my confidence in Ten Hag is gone. I think I think it's really gone now. I, I think in terms of like three different threads, like player development, like we've not seen anything. Everyone's gone backwards this season. We thought like, oh, Ten Hag has got the best out of Rashford last season. He get the best out of Sancho. Blah blah blah. Nothing like that's come. Like the tactics on the pitch, like the, we've spoken about it at length, ad nauseum. Like there's no defined style. There's no, you can't change a game from the the bench. Like it's it's really worrying that like we can't control the game against really poor sides. His ability mm. to see a footballer and judge a football is so worrying. I know he shouldn't be buying players in the way that he has had to, in 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 the way that because our recruitment team has been so bad but look 
but his like faith in players who he's seen on a day-to-day basis like Anthony Amrabat might have been what five years ago it might have been in the past year his faith in those types of players to be able to cut in the Premier League that says so much about him in my opinion and then there's also like really does, the man yeah. management which just doesn't seem to be very good subtle like and he also it feels yeah. like he's like Mourinhoing like he's He's getting more and more aggy at people. He's slashing out, and it's—I don't know. There's, there's, there's so lit, there's so few signs there for me. Like at this stage, that he's going to be the man. And yeah, I mean, I, I would probably cut him loose at this point. But like, there's, there's very little option out there to to replace him with. I, 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 I don't mm. think that whatever happens in the summer. It, Ten Hag is going to get the best out of United next season, and he and he's an elite manager. There's too many. There's too many yeah. cons in in from what I've seen so far from for to to classify Ten Hag as elite. And yeah, he was great. He was great in in, in a in a pragmatic pragmatistic way last season. But a, a manager to win the Premier League has to be better than that. And I don't think you win the league on pragmatism alone these days. No, no, time times moved on from that uh, I mean I, I thought we were getting a, a coach not exactly in the fully Dutch style you know Ajax Barcelona that kind of you know what was total football became tiki taka but but a more possession dominant style and we haven't had that this season he's just gave, given up on it and he, and of course he, he's not had especially in midfield he's he's had a lot of problems and and perhaps not had the players in order to do that but yeah I've, I've been surprised about like how much United have regressed this season so I'd be looking for a massive uptick in results and before the summer and then the and then and there's Robert says if not ETH then who and I don't know exactly but I would say if you look at what Ineos have learned over their five years at owning Nice they went from Galtier and a few others to a much younger coach and started buying younger players as well. And I wonder if that's not the template they'll end up following. And I'm not to say, like, I don't know who that is. Maybe they go for a younger coach in the Premier League. I mean, Deserby's an obvious one. It's a big, big lift to go from Brighton to, to United. Very different environment. But, like, who knows? I haven't got an answer for that one, but I, I wonder whether that's just an indicator of what they might be thinking. I've got a name for you. But we'll see. I, I haven't, I yeah, haven't even seen linked to United's job, and that's probably because of his Liverpool past. But what about Xabi Alonso? Like, well, there were reports a little while ago, but yeah, he's doing a fantastic job at Leverkusen. Fantastic. I, I, I would. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, everyone's saying that he's going to be the successor to Klopp type of thing, and it makes sense that does, but. I think make him say it, no yeah like I, so. I, I think I think it just makes sense to just go for him like it, there are there are a few there are few options like that the, there aren't that many names that shout out at you I think like if you kind of look at the big ones say like Z- Zidane like no way like Nagelsmann was one who no. I thought for a bit like might be like a good one you're already kind of running out of options. Like you say, Deserby mm. might be, but it's like you say, a huge step up and he's never managed at such a big club like that. But then you see that Jabby, well, the, the, the job that Jabby Alonso is doing at, at Leverkusen, the the the, foot, the style of football they play, his man, man management seems to be so good. And he's also got this, 
this passion, which is so important, like so uh, Premier League managers and, and almost every manager apart from probably Ancelotti, but that's that his style of his personality style really suits uh, Real Madrid. Every other kind of manager in world mm. football, the best ones all have this intensity, this burning intensity. And he has the same thing. It's almost like this Basque style of intensity and the Basque managers mm. that right now are absolutely flying. I mean, it, it, I, I can imagine like some people would turn their nose up because he's like an ex Liverpool man and would he actually come to United? But he's not going to turn a United job jam, surely. Like, I'd go all out again. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting shout. He does have charisma as well. And I think we should learn something about that. I mean, obviously, you want the full yeah. package, don't you? But at United, the lack of charisma in Ten Hag mm-hmm. is like, there's many things. His judgment of players, shockingly poor, yeah. honestly, just shockingly poor. He should not be allowed to, to pick his own transfers anymore. And I don't think will be. His man management, like, they needed someone to sort out the the cultural problems, but he's 100% draconian 100% of the time, and I'm not sure that has worked either. Fergie knew when to put an arm yeah. around the shoulder and when to, to beat someone up. Literally, in some cases. <laughs> Bex. And then... So, so, yeah. And then the tactical stuff. I mean, we've seen this season, as soon as he, he was under pressure... Like some weird, weird, weird choices. Yeah. We, we should move on, but there are a bunch of other questions. 90s suit asked about responding to in-game changes. Raymond, Raymond Pine said, Eric Ten Hag's in-game management, why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, Herbert Mark Hughes says, if Ten Hag is getting grumbly about Anthony, how far are we off from a Mourinho-esque tenure-ending strop? I don't think so, no. Ten Hag, actually. I think he's... Uh, He's quite level in his personality. I just think there's not much personality. I think he also there. Uh, Puck underscore the bus. Sorry, I think he also ahead. knows that. Like, whereas Mourinho had a lot of success in in a previous time, and he knew he would get a big job after that. Like, I, I don't think if Ten Hag threw his toys out the plan, he's not getting a big job after that. So I, I think he kind of knows his level. He's humble enough to not go absolutely crazy. Yeah. All right. Sorry if we didn't get to all your questions, but to do an hour, let's have the left field questions before we wrap this up, Tom. Andy McCoy says, which is stranger, Henderson ruining his reputation for nothing, which is true, literally nothing. He's not going to get paid for his six months in, in Saudi. Didn't, didn't like the luxury compound, apparently. Uh, or Gerard getting a two-year extension for not winning any games of football. Yeah, I know. Just... Yeah, and I mean, I have zero sympathy for Jordan Henderson. Oh, my he, God, no. He pretended to be an ally, and then he went for the money. And then he didn't he didn't hack it, he didn't like it, playing in a shitty mid-table team, so probably at about League Two level, basically, and didn't like living in a compound. So, I mean, fuck him. I, I, I just don't know how he didn't foresee this coming. Like, what did he think was going to happen, seriously? Like, did he do any research before he went? Like... It's, it's not. just, it's just so daft. Like, it's just a hilarious episode. It's a shame he's got to, gone to a club as great as Ajax, to be honest. I know Ajax haven't been doing great this season, but like, it's a shame he's got like a j- get out of jail free card in that. I know, well, yeah, I guess get out of jail free is, is kind of apt seeing as he's doing it for free, but yeah. Well, he's only doing it for free because he didn't want to get a big tax bill <laughs> because he hadn't spent enough time as a non-dom. 
So let, let's not let's not pretend he's like somehow at the charity of his heart, yeah. <laughs> not taking a wage. Yeah, so, I mean he's yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I suppose in theory, like some of the Barcelona players having deferred, he's still contractually owed money. I, it just seems like he's forfeited about four million pounds in order to make this transfer happen. Whatever. I yeah. I, I have zero sympathy for him. No. I, I know quite a lot of do, um, non-doms or uh, expats across the Middle East, um, and and it is a very particular lifestyle. There's differences between UAE and Bahrain and and uh, Qatar and Saudi, obviously, but the idea that as a well-paid expat you live in a sort of expat compound with with servants and a pool and all of that kind of there's a certain kind of lifestyle and it's not the same basically yeah it, it reminds me of like ian rush when you went to juventus and that famous quote which may be apocryphal but apparently he said yeah it was like living in a foreign country <laughs> all right jordan <laughs> simon hunter says new stadium or renovation yeah i mean this is my thoughts on it are there, there's two questions at play. One is the emotional one. So United's attachment to Old Trafford, it's been our home for more than a century, on and off, given that we're obviously away from the ground during after the war. But there's not much left of the original. So that's, that's the question. And then there's the financial one. Obviously, it costs a lot of money to build a stadium, but you can finance that. And it doesn't count towards FFP, except if you do what Everton did and try and pretend that Planning is a capitalization cost, which it fucking is not. Everton fans bleating about that. Just learn some accounting. And then the revenue can drive from it. If you look at what Spurs have done with their new stadium. So I don't know whether a refurbishment will drive significant new revenue. I mean, you can put another 10,000 seats on there. It's going to cost a few hundred million to do that. The difficulties of building on the South Stand. I don't know whether it drives enough revenue to justify it. Now, obviously, Ratcliffe is not thinking about this in purely revenue terms, but the club kind of needs to in order to benefit from it. So I think the most sensible decision would be to just build a brand new stadium, 90, 100,000, all the facilities, stupid exec facilities so you can charge people ridiculous amounts and and charge lower fees for everyday fans. That's probably the most sensible. Obviously, the emotional one is... Who really wants to knock down Old Trafford and yeah. be away from that? So that's my feeling on it, anyway. Yeah, it would it would be so sad. It it would be so sad to see it go. I know, like like you say, you put like forward the rational reasons there, but like, yeah, I, I think just even looking at it on TV and also being there is, don't know, having been there so often and since since such a young age, it's, it would be so sad to see yeah. it go, and I can see why. Like just thinking about it now, I can see why so many West Ham fans down the years that like when Upton Park went and when Arsenal lost uh, Highbury, like why they were so sad when it when it went because it can be if if the new stadium isn't done well, like in the in the way of West Ham and and especially the first few years of the Emirates, those new stadiums do and can become very soulless places. Tottenham have done it done it yeah. fantastically, like. They've done everything right in that. It cost them so much. Yeah, it feels like it cost them loads of money, but they have the the that one stand is is superb, but the atmosphere there is amazing. They obviously have the the under uh, the NFL link, so they can bring in more money in that that respect. They they've done it really well, but if you do it badly, you could lose an, an incredible, incredible 
meeting place, like a religious venue almost, and you could replace it by with something that has no heart at all in the yeah. same way as like West Ham have done. Like, so you have, you have to do it right. You have to do it well. And that, that would be my big fear because Old Trafford yeah, is a special yeah. place and the, and the look and feel of it is amazing. It's so unique in the way it looks. And that's another thing when you build like these new stadiums, like the Emirates Stadium, I've seen about six or seven types of that I've been to, like three or four versions of that around the world. Like the Stadio de Luz in, ben, in the Benfica one is exactly like a carbon copy of that. Or yeah. Emirates was a carbon copy, whatever came first. So yeah, you have to do it right. You have to make it unique for it to be uh, for for them to get the new stadium right. I think that's right. I mean, there are quite a lot of new stadiums are soulless. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wembley, so is many, yeah. Emirates is horrible. I've been there. I just yeah. hate it. Yeah. Highbury. I mean, I don't want to praise Arsenal at all, but Highbury was special. Mm-hmm. It's that you close know? to the Had pitch feel, which so many of the yeah. old grounds have, like Everton as well. Like, I'd be worried if I was an Everton fan because Goodison has that you're on top of the players type yeah, feel. Yeah. It's it, that old fashioned style is so awesome. And in the same way as United. So, so was White Hart Lane. Yeah, 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 exactly. White Hart Lane was like yeah, that as well. Yeah. You're right on top of things. Mm-hmm. And their concourses were really narrow, you know, like almost body width in some places mm-hmm. at White Hart Lane. And, and and they've done it right. But yeah, a lot of a lot of stadiums aren't. I mean, I've been to a lot of stadiums over here in the US and well, you tend to get wide concourses with a lot of facilities and they don't have to be sort of luxury facilities. They're just things like it's easy to get food and beer and that kind of stuff is nice and it's not easy at Old Trafford. You can obviously queue for a long time yeah. um, and the toilets don't work and all of that kind of stuff. So like I, I, my the emotional side, I'm a fan. Right? I don't want to see Old Trafford go. If I was looking at it just just from a financing point of view, the most sensible thing I think would be to build a new stadium. There's plenty of land. United own loads of land. There's there there is room to put a new stadium basically right next door, and yeah. So we'll we'll see where Ineos go with this one. He's a fan as well, right? Yeah, more or less an extent. He's from Failsworth, and yeah. So I, I wonder whether the emotional resonance of just revamping Old Trafford, which will take a fair bit of money, but extending, revamping will be what happens. I just wonder whether like financially it makes more sense to build a new one. Anyway, all right, couple of couple of last ones before we go. One for Tom. Are there any good, this is uh, Remington Moses says, are there any good young Hungarian players that any of us should be looking at? I think Zalan Vodja would be he, the one, like, he's, <laughs> By far the best Hungarian talent, but unfortunately is owned by the City Football Group, which is great. Yeah. So he's at uh, Lomel in, in Belgium at the moment. He's linked to go to Girona, which is also part of the City Football Group. So yeah, yeah he's he's another one. He's he's the, the top talent. There's also Jakob, Jakob Ishvili, which is kind of a Georgian name, but he's Hungarian. He's also in the City Football Group, played for Girona. So that's the most annoying thing is the two kind of big talents in ongoing football are there and Christian Listes is going to Frankfurt next season he's decent and also Milos Kerkes who's at Bournemouth I'd have loved United to have signed him in the summer like he would have been I think I think Bournemouth signed him for something like 15 million left back he's so electric going forward he's only 20 years old and he's, he's taken to the Premier League pretty well it's the signing that United yeah. would never make like as in like we never kind of make that 19 20 year old who's going to break into the team but he's he'd have been perfect especially with our left back problems um he's not mm. a, amazing defensively 
but it's great going forward and it, it'll end up at a big club. I think it'll probably end up at Liverpool alongside Sobos like, in time. He's that good. All right. All right. I know Klopp loves him, so that's, yeah. It, it basically, yeah, yeah, well, Sobot Sai would have uh, solved some uh, midfield problems. Yeah, all the Hungarians just end up at being going to end up at rival clubs. Uh, well, what can you do? Well, now now we're part of a multi club ownership group. That's true. Uh, are we the junior party because it's only a twenty five percent or twenty? It'll be twenty. It'll be twenty eight and a bit percent ownership. Yeah, so we got Nice, Arsi Lausanne, and see uh, Abidjan. I th- which I think is not owned by Ineos, just a sponsorship and partnership, whatever that means. So it's a bit hard to understand that one. Last one, Remington Moses. Again, why do you get two questions, Remington? But yeah, <laughs> you've, got, you've got in here now. <laughs> why are our players so incapable of changing style? They do it for a while and stop. LVG just passed, Rangnick pressed. ETH shows signs last year at times. Brighton could do it, Spurs, Villa, Bournemouth, for fuck's sake. But we're still effectively a counter-attacking team. Yes, it seems to be in the DNA of this. I mean, I think part of it's like if you think about our creative hub is Bruno. He is, by the way, still the leading chance creation engine in the Premier League. He's still top of that. Shot creating actions. I think it's because he's a chaos merchant and so is Marcus Rashford. And so to a slightly lesser extent is Garnacho, and so is Casemiro, even if he's not been fit. And so is Scott McTominay, right? There's so few of these players who are who are calm possession based footballers who fit into that kind of style that you've you mentioned there. So I think I think that's it. We've just got a bunch of chaos merchants and you're gonna have to revamp the squad if you want a possession dominant team. Yeah. I, I, I think I think that's perfect. And I also think kind of think Bruno, like you say, creates so many chances, he's our best player, he's he's phenomenal at times, but Put, would you put him in a, any of the teams in the top four in the Prem? Like, I don't, he would easily get in them, but I don't know if he fits into their style. And I think he kind of creates a lot of problems. I think you'd have to really work on his discipline as a footballer. You'd also need to work on the fact that he tries Hollywood passes all the time. You'd need to kind of constrain him a little bit like City did with Jack Grealish to fit him into your side. And I think, I think, he, he, yeah, he, yeah. He, hit a nail on the head whereas it's just a lot easier if you're a manager to go yeah fuck it Bruno you try and do everything and then we'll just build the team around you which I think I'm not saying the team is completely built around Bruno but when you have your best player who is a chaos merchant like that it's hard to it's hard to bring the stability and the control around that which yeah yeah all right Good point on which to end. Uh, backers, I, I, I've i had COVID, so I haven't quite sorted out my conversation on the AFCON, which I was planning to do. So that will come at some point this week. Stay tuned for that in the backers feed. Everyone else, thank you very much for listening. Uh, you can find Tom at Thomas Mortimer on Twitter. You can find me at NQAT Pod. We're on YouTube as well. If you like to see our beautiful faces, thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you again soon.